Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Rachel Cohn. So we will be looking at uh, the the parsha for the upcoming Shabbat, the Ha'alotacha. We get um, the laws of what's become known as Pesach Sheni, basically the second chance for offering the the Pesach offering for the folks who didn't get to do it the first time around. So as we are are looking at this tonight, um, one just, you know, kind of parallel situation that's crossed my mind is as as all of these, you know, the COVID restrictions are are loosening and people are starting to get back to shades of normalcy, I'm hearing more and more stories about people deciding, you know, there was this, this life cycle event, for instance, that happened during COVID. We had a Zoom graduation party. We had a Zoom memorial. We had a Zoom, you know, some way to mark some milestone. And then facing the decision, are we now, as people in some numbers can gather in person, are we going to have an extra or a second or some other shade of of making up that thing that they they missed in its, you know, most most joyous form or or most in the case of you know events of mourning that have also been deeply impacted by COVID. You know, there are people who feel that they missed really essential pieces of of processing um, critical moments in their in their lives. So there's now more and more people who are who are facing even a year later saying, you know, should we still have some kind of while it may not be called a funeral, if the person's already been buried, for instance, like what, what is this, this idea of second chances, I I just see it kind of coming up in, in some ways that may feel parallel may may not really depending on how, how we're understanding the situation. But I think it's just worth keeping that in mind, as we as we consider these laws of Pesach Sheni that we will will look at, like, what does it mean to have a second chance for us in our, our world right now as things open up? All right. So um, for folks who have the source sheet, we will start at the top. For folks who don't have the source sheet, we will be beginning in what's uh, Numbers chapter 9, verse 10. And um, just because I wanted to sort of keep things condensed on the sheet, I'll give you the some background to the situation. Basically, what happened is God gives gives Moshe the laws of the the traditional at the regular time, Passover offering and saying, this is how you're supposed to do it. This is what you're supposed to say. This is what you're supposed to eat or not eat and, and um, how you are supposed to be when you're offering it. And then some people in the community, rightfully so, come to Moshe and they say, well, you know, <clears throat> we were in a state of, of impurity because we were near, um, near a dead body at the first time of the offering. So, you know, that's like not cool or unfair, however you want to read between the lines, kind of, you know, we should, we should have a chance to do this too. So he says, interesting point. Let me take your case to God and we'll figure it out. And God ends up then delivering the, the instructions for what's become known as Pesach Sheni, a second chance one month later, um, past the original date of, of Pesach to offer, to offer what's very similar, as we'll see, very similar, but with some differences, another another paschal lamb offering. So um, what what we end up reading, again, this is Numbers 9, verse 10. 
Um, so then what God says in response to Moshe again, he says, he, she, they, God says, speak to the Israelite people saying, when any of you or of your posterity are defiled by a corpse or are on a long journey, meaning you're a far distance away from Jerusalem, since this was one of the pilgrimage festivals where you would have had to schlep yourself and some materials or money to obtain a sacrifice. So if you're, if you either have an impurity situation because of a dead body or you've been, you know, on a, a long journey away from, from Jerusalem and it would be hard to get there. Um, at the time when you would offer the, the Passover sacrifice to God, they shall offer it in the second month. The counting in this, in this case where Nisan, the month of Passover would be the first month. <clears throat> just um, to clarify. So you offered in the second month on the 14th day of the month at twilight, they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So sounds familiar. Um, And they shall not leave any of it over until morning. Again, sounds familiar. If you look back at the instructions for the, the original uh, Passover offering, they shall not break a bone of it. They shall offer it in strict accord with the law of the Passover sacrifice. And um, if you look at the Hebrew, what that that phrase is kechol chukat hapesach yaasu oto. So literally, with every law of the Pesach offering, they should do it. So you might expect reading that that literally every single instruction for the original Passover sacrifice would apply to the second one, which we'll see at least how it gets interpreted rabbinically doesn't end up exactly being the case. Okay, so that's what's described for people who have those kind of extenuating circumstances. And then it says, but if a man who is clean and not on a journey refrains from offering the Passover sacrifice, that person shall be cut off from his kin, for he did not present God's offering at its set time. That person shall bear their guilt. Okay, so in, um, you know, in a nutshell, what it appears, at least in, in the shot from the Torah description of it, is that if you have seemingly a good reason that you couldn't have offered the original Passover sacrifice, you get this, you know, extra permission, second chance. But as it describes at the end, if you kind of just didn't feel like it or didn't have what's considered here a good enough reason, then it, you know, it doesn't apply to you. It's kind of like anybody who runs an organization kind of has to like follow these fine lines of saying like, sometimes there are exceptions, but also we don't want people to misinterpret what we're saying as too lenient. So that that's kind of at least having been like a middle school teacher, that's kind of how I, I read that, descri- that description. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> anyway, so that's, that's how we see it in the original text. It already, I would say it already seems like there was, it's implied that the people who, who were in a state of ritual impurity had a good reason that they couldn't, that they couldn't offer the original Passover sacrifice. There's a comment from Sforno that I think emphasizes that aspect of it being a um, a good reason. Is there anybody with the source sheet who would like to read Sforno's comment on numbers nine seven? Backrax, I can't tell whose hand that is actually. Whichever of you is raising your hand, go for it. Are are they able to unmute? I think that you can request to unmute. Yeah. Oh, it looks like we're um, because, you're good now. Can you hear me? Oh, okay. Okay. You hear us? Yes, you're good to go. Okay, very good. We are to may by, by reason of a corpse. What would be restrained restra- restrained by not being allowed to to bring near this to being near the surface in its appointed time, seeing that their ritual 
impropriety we have incurred has inc- we have incurred has in- has incurred in the process of our willing willfulness our willfulling our fulfilling a positive commandment why should the result of this be that it causes another transgression so great thank you so much for um, for bringing that sporno to us what he's adding when when they say that we we got this ritual impurity for having done a positive commandment what some of the other commentaries seem to agree is that it's either it was a relative of theirs who they were obligated to help bury. So they, you know, they were doing a mitzvah to tend to this, um, this body, or it was like another person who didn't, you know, didn't have family and they kind of, you know, jumped in to help tend to this person. So in either case, like a huge mitzvah, one of the things that people literally can't repay you for when you're helping to, you know, to tend to um, some, you know, a, um, the body of someone who has who has recently died. So so all the more so I, I read Sforno's comment as just kind of really emphasizing these, you know, these people, not only they had a decent reason, they were actively doing a mitzvah. So Hashem, why would you, you know, bar them from fulfilling another mitzvah because they were, you know, like doing a mitzvah? These are these are mitzvah loving people. You should really make another chance for them to do this other mitzvah. OK, <clears throat> so, you know, obviously, Several generations pass in between both both the biblical text we read and Sforno and between Sforno and when we get to Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. But I want to read a couple selections from um, from Maimonides, who ends up kind of showing how how the halakha turned out, at least in his era, and also kind of clarifying some of these pieces of <clears throat> how is it how is it different um, different from the the first Passover offering, and how is it similar to? So for one thing, just kind of building on this this idea of like it being a mitzvah, he says, similarly, partaking of the second Paschal sacrifice on the 15th of the month of ER is a positive commandment, as stated, eat it with matzot and bitter herbs. So he's kind of saying, you know, they didn't they didn't miss their chance. The second chance that's being offered isn't just a you know, make you feel good thing. It's also given the same status of like it being a positive commandment. So it seems like he's kind of saying that, you know, it turns out that if you qualify for this exemption, you still get to fulfill a positive commandment, even though it's taking place at a different time. And then um, before we jump to the next text, there was something I realized I, I needed to do more research about before I could understand the piece of it that I put on the source sheet. So he, so going back to the piece about, you know, is somebody um, ritually impure? If they're ritually impure, they can't offer the, the first sacrifice. It turns out, according to Maimonides, it's not actually as black and white as the Torah description might suggest to us. So Maimonides says, if the, if it's a minority of the community, who were in this state of ritual impurity because of being near somebody who had died, then, then Pesach Sheni applies to that minority of people, they get the exemption. But if it's actually a majority of the community that are in this state of ritual impurity, then he says they don't actually need to wait till Pesach Sheni. The people who are ritually pure and ritually impure offer the sacrifice one with the other, which I found really fascinating 
And again, kind of made me think of our COVID reality. It's like if if a, if a few people have some extra, you know, extraneous circumstances going on, then let's kind of craft an alternative experience for them that they that may suit whatever's going on. But when it's really, you know, like the majority of people who are facing some, you know, Also think about what that would mean for the majority of the community to have been in in that state of impurity because of, you know, like it it could have in fact been like a plague or some or some really significant tragedy in the community that would have left them in that state. And I think that I find it really like an act of kindness that that's that's how he ends up ruling on that, because then he then the cohesion of the community is preserved and it says, no, we're all kind of making this, let's call it hybrid. You know, it's, <laughs> we're doing the original thing, but knowing that there's a lot of people who are in a state that wouldn't otherwise be like considered okay, but we're kind of going to make it work anyway. So I found that fascinating. Okay. So all that is background. Let's now look at the, what's the last source on the source sheet. Um, Rambam's where the, the second Rambam piece, the last source on the sheet, Laws of the Pesach Offering, chapter 10, um, number 15. Um, is there anybody who would, it's kind of a chunk of English text, again, to make it all fit on one nice page. Is there anybody who would like to read um, this last Rambam source? Okay, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do it. <clears throat> what are the differences between the first Paschal sacrifice and the second Paschal sacrifice? At the time of the first, chametz is forbidden to be seen or possessed in one's domain. It may not be slaughtered while one is in possession of chametz. Its meat may not be removed from the company in which it was designated to be eaten. Halal must be recited when it is eaten. A, fe- um, a festive offering is brought with it. So that's what's called the chagiga, like an additional offering. It may be brought in a state of impurity if the majority of the people are impure because of contact with a human corpse, as we explained. So that was the background I was giving you beforehand. Mm. Um, and then this is the part that, you know, I found, I was very surprised to read this last piece um, that I have bolded on the source sheet, if you mm. have it. With regard to the second Paschal sacrifice, by contrast, both chametz and matzah may be possessed by the person at home. Halal is not recited while partaking of it. It may be taken out of the company in which it was designated to be eaten. A festive offering is not brought with it, and it may be brought in a it may not be brought in a state of impurity. So interestingly, on the impurity front, in some ways it's 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 more black and white mm-hmm. that if you're gonna be doing the the Pesach Sheni second chance offering, you have to be in a state of purity. And I've described this kind of exception if there's a communal, you know, upheaval for the for the first one yeah okay but but the part that surprised me at least was saying that um that you can actually like have you could have like just eaten a sandwich that was very very leavened and you know have lots of chametz at your house and then go offer your your Pesach Shani sacrifice so you know in contrast if we go back to the original description um the uh, numbers nine, verse 12, they shall offer it in strict accord with the law of the Passover sacrifice. You know, it's interesting that, again, it, this is at least Rambam's interpretation. To me, that seems like a major difference in the laws of the original Passover sacrifice. Um, so at this point, I'd be curious to, yeah, get any any thoughts about that. Marlies? 
Oh, I just had a question. Sure. Um, so when it says Hallel is recited, this is um, like pre-rabbinic uh, before Siddur type prayer Hallel, or what is that exactly? I mean, I'm imagining this is like, again, something that if I, I like would love to look more into exactly when Rambam says Hallel, what is he referring to? But I, you know, I'm presuming by, by Rambam's time, he, you know, he like, he's adding a layer onto it that isn't necessarily what he thought was happening in the biblical description. He's saying like, this is my, you know, in rabbinic times, this is how, this is like how we would expect to see things granted, like the temple was not there, but there's a lot of rabbinic writing that kind of presumes that there could be another temple or here's like how you would do it if, if the temple was standing. So I'm, I don't know exactly what text he's working from, but I'm presuming that it includes at least a chunk of what we would still call Hallel today. Um, Cantor Torney, does that? <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to check my source work, but I think that the Sidorim that we have have the order of Hallel fixed for centuries before Rambam's time. Uh, again, like, worth double checking that, but the order of Hallel has been fixed for a long time. You're right. Um, it, it is an interesting contrast because it's, it is a, he's referring to a biblical set of customs and Hallel is obviously rabbinic. So that's sharp right. of you, or at least to pick up on that. Um, but that construct of something rabbinic is entirely uh, made up of biblical passages. So those have existed for a long time. And I, and I do think they were cobbled together in the order in which we find them today. By the time of Sidor Rav Amram, I think. I will double check and get back to you on that. But I think they're pretty set in existence by his time. Yeah. Um, super interesting question. And now I know now have some more stuff to go look at. So, uh, Brant, yeah, I, at this point, I'm just kind of curious to get anyone's thoughts on like this contrast. Does it, is it surprising to you that like these similarities, differences, other thoughts, Brant? Oh, yep. Oh, you're muted. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that when you, when you read this, that the last one is so inconsistent with the first one. Right. And what's interesting to me is that if you look at religion, the necessity for religion is communal participation, right? Communal participation. So you can't have that many exceptions, correct? Because otherwise, if everybody could have their own Pesach when they wanted it, there'd be no Pesach, okay? Right. So so the, the, the exceptions are very strictly construed. The thing about the, the, uh, the impurity there, there's discussion about that because people are actually in the community why they're impure. Right. But they're not in the community when they're traveling. So that one was not discussed, which is interesting to me because that prevents real practicality. So it appears to me that the latter one conflicts with the first one, but the part of it that is fascinating to me is that if you make it into a separate sort of like practice that's not as strict as the other one, then it's not as special as the other one either. So you don't lose the adherence to the special because you made it different. And mm -hmm. the way I view all these things is the necessity of the continuation of the groupthink, the mm -hmm. communal aspects of religion, which, which all religions need to survive. And that's what the modernity comments show you in, in contrast to the original text. 
that we have to structure this in such a way that it's not really the same thing that we want to preserve for the community. Right. So really interesting point. It sounds like you're saying, Brant, you know, while the Torah text is saying it's supposed to be, you know, virtually the same thing, that these changes of not doing halal with it, of, you know, it not being as special a state, you can, you know, you don't have to clear your house out of hummets before you go do it. Like those, it, it makes it seem more special to still be with the, you know, as many people as possible doing the first one. Um, great point. Other, other thoughts, Cantor Torney? I have a source for, for us that Rabbi Reuven Hammer, Zichronoli Vracha, was an incredible uh, resource and a great Syracusean. Um, a, I'm also head of, a former head of the Rabbinical Assembly. I recommend all of his commentaries on liturgy and more. Uh, he, um, in his commentary, he notes that already in Tanit, if you want to look into um, the Bavli, into the Babylonian Talmud, already in Masechet Tanit, we were we had the invention of Chatzia Hallel, of the half Hallel, this idea that we have a festive Hallel that's diminished on certain days when Hallel was not said in the temple, reinforcing the fact that Hallel was indeed said in the construct that we know it uh, in temple times, or at least there was a presumption that there was a Hallel said in this construct in temple times. So uh, it's it's pretty it is as ancient as I as my brain was telling me, I remembered it was, but a nice confirmation by uh, Rabbi Reuven Hammer that that construct is is indeed um, as ancient as the temple. Great, thank you. Um, <clears throat> any other thoughts on what's what's striking to you in these differences, similarities, Joanna? I have to, yes, I have to. to. Um, so um, it's interesting to me, like, that we have an opportunity for Pesach Shani, but not for a lot of other things Shani. Like there's no Bikurim Shani or Pick Your Mitzvah Shani. And, um, and, you know, so then the question why? And a lot of what I'm thinking about this really, you know, through the lens of, you know, living through COVID, like I wonder if, you know, we would come to the same conclusions, you know, not in these times. But I'm thinking that part of what's going on here, perhaps, is somewhat similar to what's taken place in this community vis-a-vis Mourner's Kaddish, that while we don't rank mitzvot or say certain mitzvot are more important, the reality is that certain mitzvot touch the heart of people more than others do. And, um, and so then therefore, you know, Pesach, like if you think to our own day, having a Pesach Seder in some form is one of the most observed rituals in Judaism. So that um, once we acknowledge that there was a group of people for whom observing Pesach would be incredibly difficult, when we provide that alternate opportunity, we're going to do it in a way that really makes it accessible because we're acknowledging the difficulty of the, of the times. So, you know, in 2019, you know, no one might've thought of having zoom services or saying, Oh yeah, mourner can chime in from afar to say mourner's Kaddish. But when we hit a situation realizing the difficulty, certain decisions were made to say, we have to enable the people to feel that connection and and to maintain that connection. Absolutely. Um, and I think that what, you know, that's, that's spot on citing, you know, like what, 
while there's no literal ranking, how do these function in the lives of the people performing these meets vote? And, you know, it's it, like the Pew study agrees with what you're saying that like even more than people who go to, uh, well, I haven't actually read the, the most recent one. So, I, <laughs> but the last one that I read, at least even more than people who go to show on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, there's widespread participation in a, in, in a Passover Seder in some form. And so, you know, we could, Talk more about why that might be the communal narratives, part of, you know, freedom, it being, you know, trendy, even with secular culture today. But, you know, so like, I think that's a really great point that that particular mitzvah might have held, you know, significance even even through the ages. Yes, we're looking at it from that lens today, but I think it it has a unique kind of staying power that that may have been, you know, have been felt through the generations. So um, thank, thank you for that. Other thoughts. So just to think back to kind of my opening thought about what what's worth redoing and what's worth, you know, kind of accepting that the first version of it was imperfect or different during COVID. I think that the <clears throat> the description of Pesach Sheni offers kind of both paradigms as as valid that especially in that in the example I described, though didn't get on the source sheet of Rambam saying, when the majority of people have faced something significant that would make them ritually impure, you do actually band together and those people can participate the first time, which I see as more kind of parallel to, okay, we're having, you know, the Zoom bar mitzvah, and it's different than we might have expected, but we're going forward. And then there's also the other cases of saying, no, sometimes people couldn't do it the first time. <clears throat> We're making this other, you know, second round thing that's at a different time. Also is, you know, imperfect and different in some in some way and isn't quite as special maybe or doesn't have all of the unique elements of the first time. And yet it's still considered a positive mitzvah. It's still considered to have the same weight for the people who are doing that. So I, at least in from where I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in these still kind of strange times that we find ourselves in, I'm seeing the laws of Pesach Sheni speak to those both being really like important and true and valid ways of, of moving forward when, when rituals arrive at times when things may not be exactly as you, as you expect. So I hope for any of you, if you are, if you are facing choices like that, if you know people who are facing choices like that, that we will we will be able to hold on to the significance in whatever in whatever ways those moments have have arrived in our lives in this past year 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 and a half and and the months ahead. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.